Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Saturday, January 15th. On today's show, we offer another update on Novak Djokovic's status entering this 2022 Australian Open. The latest development in the saga seems to indicate that Djokovic will not be participating at this year's event, as on Friday, Australian Immigration Minister Andrew Hawke announced that the government would be rescinding Djokovic's visa moving forward. Now, Djokovic and his lawyers have lodged another appeal of that decision. We're supposed to have an answer to the question of Djokovic's status prior to play beginning on Monday. Of course, it's worth noting Djokovic is scheduled to play his match Monday as well. So as always, chaos continuing to be a central theme of this story. But of course, we wanted to help all of you listeners, all of you tennis fans, sift through that chaos. So on today's show, I am joined once again by by Tennis Channel and Tennis.com editorial producer David Kane to discuss the latest developments surrounding Novak Djokovic, discuss what sort of timeline we can expect moving forward. Of course, there are some other news in the tennis world we wanted to discuss on today's show. Perhaps most notably, the International Tennis Hall of Fame did not induct a new nominee this season for the first time since it was founded in 1955. That feels significant, folks, and I wanted to get David's opinion on that story. I wanted to ask David for his thoughts on the announcement that Netflix will be launching a behind-the-scenes look at professional tennis over the course of the next couple months. They're going to follow players around very similarly to how they do with the Formula One Drive to Survive series. If you haven't seen that, that would be a pretty good primer for perhaps what you can expect out of this series. As I believe it's the same executive producer running the show, but of course, I wanted to hear from David what he thinks, uh, you know, expectations-wise for this show, what sorts of players he expects Netflix to be gravitated towards and so much more and then we wanted to talk about some of the tennis that's happening and of course are you even on tennis Twitter if you haven't launched the tweet oh you know I'm just so sad all this off-court nonsense has clouded what has been a really fun court on court week Uh, no you're not right and so obviously uh, you know we wanted to echo that sentiment here on this show and highlight some of those on court developments there has been some fantastic tennis play down under and so we wanted to talk about that as we all begin to turn our attention towards the 2022 Australian Open. By the way, if you're looking for Australian Open preview content, we broke down our men's and women's contenders here on this podcast feed. We talked about the dark horses and the Americans to watch for over on the Great Shot podcast feed. So we we think we have you covered on what to expect over the next couple of weeks. Of course, draw previews coming out later today, either on this podcast feed or the Great Shot podcast feed. So be on the lookout for those as well. And then, of course, throughout the two weeks, We'll have daily recaps, daily picks, match of the days for our Patreon subscribers as well as we try to cover this Australian Open, provide all of you fans with the coverage we know you deserve. Of course, speaking of all of you, have to thank you once again for continuing to tune into this show. It wouldn't be possible without the support we get from all of you, without the support we get 
from our Crack Rackets Patreon family. And of course, without the support we get from our friends at Tennis Point, you all know the deal, tennis-point.com. Use that promo code CR15 to get 15% off your order, free two-day shipping on all orders, exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. Again, tennis-point, symbol not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. One last thing before we get to my conversation with David Kane, and I'm going to do this occasionally on weekends. Of course, we'll save the broader recaps for Chris Hallioris, Mastikoyak, John Parsons throughout the week. But TCU, 4-3 over Florida at home yesterday. TCU takes the doubles points. They get wins from Famba at number one singles over Riffis. They get a win at number two singles from Juan Carlos Aguilar over Ben Shelton. They then... Uh, you know, knock off a previously undefeated Josh Gujer at the number six position. I believe that's Jake Fernley clinching the match for the Horned Frogs. College tennis is back, folks, and just seeing the match point, the rush, the first of what will be countless court rushes throughout the course of this 2022 season. Obviously, it was a major bummer that there was no live streaming for us to actually watch and enjoy the event if we weren't in person, but following the score lines, the drama, ugh, did it feel good to have college tennis back? And, you know, again, it's been a while since we've seen Ben Shelton on the court. And obviously, it's worth remembering, despite all the future success and all the junior success and, you know, all the pro success that he had this fall, college success as well, you know, this is his first match in the top three of a singles lineup on the road at TCU. They had fans in the stands. It was that ruckus sort of environment. And again, TCU got to play a warm-up match. Uh, you know, earlier in the week, even with only five guys, they at least got to shake off some of the rust. This was the very first match for Florida of the season. And let's just remind everyone, 20, you know, we didn't get to see the end of the 2020 season. I think everyone was feeling pretty good about Florida still in 2020. Yes, they lost to Texas first weekend of the season last year, kickoff weekend, first weekend of the season. They lose to Texas again. We know this Florida team will look way different in May than it will now and of course it was notable that Florida dropped the doubles point that was something they struggled with last year and just with the depth all of these teams have and I'll get to the TCU side in a second um, you know doubles is that much more important this year and I guarantee you we're going to see the Gators play around with their lineup play around with their doubles pairings it was interesting to see Riffis and Shelton line up at one and two singles line up at one doubles that was not what we expected given the health issues Sam Riffis has had over the past couple of months and I mean look if you're Florida you got to feel pretty good that you're going to win three singles every time and Duarte Valle you know had the chance to close out in straight sets tough match for him against Sander Jong he ultimately gets the job done in three though you feel good about that if you're Florida. Andy Andrade, big third set win for him to kick off his season. That confidence so crucial to Andrade's game. And look, Matthias Seymour at five. If you're the Gators, five, five's got to be a lock for you, right? You got to feel pretty good about that. You feel pretty good about six singles as well. And that's a testament to Jake Fernley. And again, these TCU Horned Frogs, we talked about it in our season preview. You can go hear it on the Great Shot podcast feed. They're six. Whatever it may look like, you know, again, they're not as deep as some of the teams that we ranked a little bit higher. They've got six, seven guys really locked in. They're a damn good six. Like, if this team stays healthy, I mean, they proved it right away. Night number one, even without Alistair Gray. You have, you know, Famba ready to take that step up, particularly indoors at that number one singles position. We know Aguilar can be as competitive as anyone in the nation in a top three singles spot. And then, 
you know, again, Sander Jong was excellent last year. You feel good if you can sneak him back at three, but the depth of this team with Jirasek and Fernley and just, you know, again, I know they're still missing. I, I forget which freshman, whether it was Marcos Maxted, who was playing yesterday at five, um, but this team's got options, and Tim Rule obviously floating on that bench as well. I mean, TCU played a, a perfect match, and it helped to have the home crowd, helped to be indoors against these Gators, particularly, you think, for Famba. You know, that's going to amplify his serve, his plus-one game that much more. What a win for TCU to start the season, and there is no better start to a college tennis season than that first David Roditi post-match. Hey, Frog fans, like, that's how you know college tennis is back, and college tennis is back. 4-3 to start things off, and, you know, again, they played four singles matches first, then put the next two on, and for, you know, the Gators, it looked like they were down and out because Famba, you know, knocks out Riffis quickly, and Shelton loses his match to Aguilar, and they're down 3-0, and it looked like, you know, Vale, instead of getting over the hump in straight sets, he loses his second to Sander Jong, and, you know, again, Andrade either lost the first or the second, I think he lost the first set and ended up coming back in the second and third and this Florida team still managed to fight and scrap and claw. And I do think there's a little nugget there for Coach Shelton and Coach Stump to build off of. And look, they're going to get tested right away as they've got TC, uh, they got Texas coming up on Sunday. And, you know, TCU, by the way, their weekend's not over either. Tennessee coming to town this weekend. And so, yeah, it, it, we're back, folks. College tennis is back. And I apologize. I know this intro went a little long. I promise you're going to enjoy my conversation with David talking about all the things happening at the pro tour and obviously there's some coffee bowl i believe with j1 coffee was bowl was this week at the junior level and it's a lot of fun stuff happening right now you know january is always an exciting month in the tennis world but you know we at cracked records will always gravitate towards college tennis tcu 4-3 knocking off number one florida first serious weekend of the year college tennis is back with that said let's get to it another update on Djokovic Hall of Fame Netflix and week two on the pro tour with our friend David Kane joining us on the podcast once again today the returning champions of returning champions here to our crack rackets podcast in 2022 of course you know him best as an editorial producer for tennis.com for De- tennis channel our go-to source for all things novak Djokovic here throughout this 2022 australian open and of course our friend david kane david welcome back to the show i missed you it was a full 24 hours how are you doing today Dobrovich, Sasha. I didn't know if we were gonna if we were gonna meet. I thought there was gonna be more decisions to be made, but I feel like we we've got a good we we reached an injunction. We reached a period where we can <laughs> take a break and discuss, and we'll be back in another twenty four hours when there's a new decision. But in the this, meantime, I'm happy to discuss the latest update. This is how I know you've been on the Djokovic case because you're using the term injunction here early on. I'm like, man, you watched that court case. I don't think I've ever been more angry with you than through the first two minutes of that court case where he's like, yeah, we're going to determine. Let's spend five minutes to see if we should sit in front of three judges. Should we sit in front of an entire panel of judges? What do we want to do here? I was like, I'm going to kill David. I was like, oh, we've, my we've God. come out of this learning way too much about the Australian <laughs> legal system. <laughs> 
Australian COVID protocols way more than I ever needed to know. Supply chain, you know, all of it. I I was yearning for the days of the Scott Morrison supply chain press conference during that legal proceeding. I was like, there is nothing that could be more entertaining than listening to Scott Morrison bumble through his speeches compared to this godforsaken trial. It honestly gave me chills. And might have been because it was 40 degrees outside of New York City, but either way, I was here for it. Yeah, it and the first eight to eight to nine minutes. Not to be, take make this too serious because that's not what we do here at Cracked Records, but you also can't help but think of the thousands, thousands of immigration claims that are just sitting there, not just you know, again, floating through the system and pushed aside for this Novak Djokovic highly highly you know, highly visible spectacle. And it's just Again, if these are all the little proceedings it takes, it's indicative. And it's not just an indictment, by the way, on the Australian immigration system. I would argue every immigration system across the country is like this. And the United States, that being where I'm from, I'm not going to defend our system because there are plenty of things you could correct in that as well. But what a mess. Like, you're right. There's not a single entity, whether it's the Australian government, whether it's Tennis Australia, Craig Tiley, the players, I think the ATP organization. I'm sorry to lump them in, but like, is the WTA prepared for a situation like this? I don't know if they are. And just, it is, every media member now, by the way, if you haven't tweeted, I just wish we could focus on the tennis. Like that take has become so jaded and so, dare I say, false from so many people. But it's the, the reason everyone's sending it is because we're not talking about the tennis and it starts in like three days. I mean, it's deeply disingenuous because I feel like most of the people who are saying that are very much engaged and entrenched oh and ensconced, to use your favorite word, within this conversation and this topic. I mean, I would be lying if I haven't gained a ton of followers in the last week and a half from this, just this, the slew of interest. I mean, I even I tweeted out the Lady Gaga video last a couple of days ago. I said, I'm really honored to be in the presence of so many locals, non-tennis people who are just, <laughs> this has become a global story. This is a CNN. Ben Rothenberg is, is a prime CNN talking head right now, thanks to the Novak Djokovic incident fiasco visa issue it's we we've got a million names for it and it's all coming to you next year on netflix we've got that to look forward to as well i'm crushed that you didn't say i'm a tv regular now that you had to point to ben it just you know again that's twice today you've crushed me um yeah gotta, i gotta would... pronounce vic lansiver right <laughs> <laughs> all right not quite Coach McKenna, but that was pretty good. That was pretty good, David. Um, no, it's um, I like a challenge, like an accountant. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, yeah, and I mean, again, I'm ostensibly having you here to update on Djokovic. That's what we're starting the podcast with. I want to ask you about some other things as well, including that on-court action we are referring to. That, uh, but you know, to just an offer an update on where things stand with Novak Djokovic again. His visa denied by the Australian government, that announcement coming on Friday. And, you know, I don't want to say that announcement felt inevitable, but this issue did become political inherently. And you look at any poll put out of the Australian people, pretty comprehensively the Australian people who – and by the way, it's damn near impossible to get 50 percent of people to agree on anything anymore (laughs) – but the Australian people were pretty unanimous in there. No, if we're going to go through these restrictions, we're not going to make an exception for Novak Djokovic. So I don't know how surprised I was to, you know, find this outcome today, you know, or that outcome this weekend, excuse me. That said, obviously Djokovic has filed his appeal, and that appeal began today. Just the timeline via our friend Tumani Cariol on what things are going to look like over the next few days. Djokovic, again, detained or 
given back into Australian Border Police custody as we await the outcome of this trial. He and his lawyers now working on their submissions for the court of why he should be allowed to stay on Sunday. There will be a court hearing at 9.30 a.m. and then on Monday, he's either going to be playing in his Australian Open first round match or he's going to be deported and sent back home. And we still don't know the answer to that question again. I don't want to say shout out to the Australian court system for expediting this trial because you think about all of those claims that were pushed aside. We will seemingly have a solution before the start of play, but we're drawn up awfully close to it. And again, David, your take on all of this, just the continued confusion surrounding this saga, we are 48 hours away from play. It's been a long week. I mean, every we were it for those covering the sports stateside, waiting up till one, two in the morning to see if there would in fact be a decision from from Minister Alex Hawk, getting the getting the the update that he was not going to update us, and with each passing day, it becoming more and more farcical because when the uh, the judge accepted Djokovic's appeal, you felt like something is going to happen. The government did reserve the right to recancel Djokovic's visa because of the technicality on which the judge uh, overruled the initial cancellation. Um, cynically, I did wonder if the fact that they were taking so long was a way to solve the potential Australian Open issue and that if we cancel his visa too close to the start of play, would he be able to play? I mean, there was certainly question during the Australian Open draw if the announced press conference from Prime Minister Scott Morrison was going to carry with it a decision regarding Djokovic and should the Australian Open even put Djokovic in the draw if they're planning to cancel his visa they don't cancel his visa on Thursday he goes into the draw the next day his visa is cancelled he's still in the draw (laughs) and that doesn't seem to have any impact on it the fact is he's going to have an appeal within 48 hours of the initial visa cancellation you know to your points it's you know it's it's the kind of expeditiousness that a lot of the refugees in that hotel that Djokovic was sharing living quarters with for several days would would hope for, that their, that their cases could be resolved as quickly um, as Djokovic's. I think what was most shocking was the justification for this second visa cancellation. I think we all came to understand the circumstances around the initial visa cancellation. We thought we had seemingly um, had gotten even more information when Djokovic had admitted to testing positive and then conducting an interview despite knowing he was positive with the Lakeith journalist, the Itwa journalists, uh, released a statement condemning the action by Djokovic. You know, journalists who have to then be in, in, in close contact with players certainly don't want to be in contact with the player that is with, withholding their COVID positive status. Alex Hawk, seemingly the reason why it took so long to recancel his visa for a second time was because of this change in justification. The fact that as a role model, he is as a very well-known role model of of an athlete, he is stoking anti-vaccine sentiment by being in the country. And that was why he needs to be deported. And, And on one hand that creates a lower threshold seemingly of justification, but on the other hand, it's a strange shifting of the goalpost because we seem to all collectively understand the circumstances behind the initial cancellation. Now for it to be something a bit more intangible is a bit difficult for everybody to wrap their heads around. But all in all, it's been a wacky week and it's going to continue right until 
minutes before play begins, it seems. No, that is, again, fundamentally, why does the Australian government not look good? It's the continued hypocrisy. And had they made this an issue of public health just from the beginning and made clear we are not granting an exemption, we wouldn't be in this place. Had they said, you know, obviously, to your point, it was a clerical error, or not a clerical error, but it was a process issue for Djokovic the first time that allows him to win the appeal. And then you talk about, again, the justification in the second appeal. In the report, it it acknowledges Novak Djokovic is a low risk to transmit the COVID uh, uh, disease while he's there, that he is at low risk to contract the COVID virus while there as well. They concede these points to Novak Djokovic. And, you know, again, I talked about this earlier, making this inherently political, this decision, which I don't know if that's good or bad. I suppose to some extent it always was. Um, But the justification is much more political than it is based on health advice and health guidance from the Australian health minister. And that was fascinating. Like that was to me unexpected. And again, as an issue of public health, If we are saying people have to get vaccinated to enter the Australian Open grounds and watch the event, then yeah, you can understand again why the Australian people will say, but wait, we're making all these exceptions for someone who is unvaccinated. That's really not the case the Australian government is making, like fundamentally. Now, there is some, again, talking about how he's a role model and how it may encourage others to not receive the vaccination, and and you mentioned that as well. But that that like that to me was fascinating. I don't know. I just I did not expect that justification. It's a wild gambit because they're really yeah. using his his own character against him. I mean, the yeah. whole reason why he doesn't want to be vaccinated is he's taken this principled stance. He doesn't feel he needs. He doesn't feel he needs to take it. And based on some of the evidence that Alex Hawk put forward in that initial hearing uh, just this this evening slash morning Australia time, was citing the evidence of poor judgment, poor character in in regards to how he's handled this COVID pandemic, dating back to the decision to hold the Adria tour while both WTA and ATP tours were locked down, during which he, his wife, and several players all contracted COVID for the first time. The Lakeep interview, the fact that he withheld his positive status from that journalist. I mean, I think it's, it's trying to make an argument about poor judgment, poor behavior, which has been the discussion about Djokovic for much of his career, behavior versus intent. He didn't intend to make the journalist's day any worse by canceling the interview, but at the same time, the action was that he knowingly exposed, potentially exposed his journalist to COVID. And so I think that is a fascinating one because again, this is these are all actions that are now going to be put to the test in the Australian Open should he be allowed to play it. It's examples where people will be able to look at it's a precedent that is set well if Djokovic is allowed to act this way why can't I it's it's sort of that um I don't want to say slippery slope but it's that sort of logical um logical sequence where if, if this is allowed to pass through what becomes of the next person who is now able to then look back and say well you gave Djokovic this pass what about me and you know reading the tweets from legal experts it seems like on one hand there it might be easier to justify that. It just has to be sort of this good faith effort on behalf of the minister that he believes this. But on the other hand, it just, again, it feels like a strange, a strange shift because it felt like there was enough based on how he conducted himself in December. The fact that he seemingly, you know, was untruthful or inaccurate in filing his, his travel documents, the fact that he was in Spain in between coming to Australia and Belgrade, the fact that that was all put on his agent <laughs> is no longer that's no longer relevant. All of the big hot topic 
discussion points of the last week were all conceded by the Australian government and in this and, and in its place is this new more ephemeral argument. Yeah, and you know again, I this might come as a shock to our listeners, neither you nor I are are bar past attorneys. Um we you know, don't have the qualifications to speak to the credibility and strength of Djokovic's case. I mean, case. I certainly yeah. feel comfortable using legal jargon in everyday life. Good, you... site, to quote one of my, one of the four or five movies that we discussed pre-pod that I watched. Oh, yeah. I've heard you work, you know, sui generis and all these different Latin terms into our daily conversations. I know. You you, you mess around a little bit. Um, and yeah, I, we've seen a Law & Order episode or two, but, you know, it's it's just... This is where we are. Like, this is the lead story, and it continues to, again, international news. It's it's punctured it. As you mentioned, it's being talked about on CNN. It's leading newspapers across the globe. It's a shame that tennis is being painted in this light. There's no denying that. And, again, I know we've talked about this before, but how do we avoid this situation moving forward for both tours? Because, yes, there are some countries with vaccine mandates, other countries without them. And so – Fundamentally, you could take it on a case-by-case base, or to me, the simplest solution, remove the gray area, both tours, enforce a vaccine mandate, you're vaccinated, you play, you're not, you're not playing. I know, again, freedom, liberty, justice for all. I, I think we talked about this the last time we had you on the show. That That's the, uh, or no, that was with Nina this morning. See, I'm mixing pods. That's the, that's what we want as tennis players, right? Freedom, liberty, and justice for all, seemingly. That's what we stand for. That said, like, no, there's just going to be gray area. This will continue to happen, right? To me, that's the only way to solve this moving forward. I agree. I mean, like, I think this is this was the tricky, this was always going to be the trickiest slam because of the strictness of Australia's COVID protocols and where it is in the calendar relative to the wide availability of vaccines, where you can say the vaccine really has only been around for six months for the majority of people. I got my vaccine in March and April. It became more widely available through the summer for most people, you know, under a certain age. Now it's become available for seemingly everybody. By the time you get to Paris, there seems like less and less of an excuse to not be vaccinated without a reason. And again, coming into May, what will the potential um, medical exemption if Paris requires medical exemptions be. I mean, I I know there's been some chatter from the sports minister saying that because their bubble is so secure, you can be unvaccinated, but given everything that just has transpired in Australia and the media storm that would be surrounding allowing an unvaccinated player at their tournament, it it hardly seems worth it from a tournament uh, organizational standpoint to then have to then defend an unvaccinated player in your midst when basically everybody else is vaccinated. And again, you know, to go back to what we've discussed so many times, we're not talking about a 50-50 split here. This is 97-3. This is 98-2. We're talking about one or two players in the top 100 who are not complying with this very reasonable request. And so then it does become a question of, well, do you sacrifice the one player? I mean, even one of the most um, emphatic voices in this debate, player voices, has been Stefano Sissipas, who says, you know, we all had to get vaccinated seemingly. And the fact that he is choosing not to makes us all look like fools. I mean, mm-hmm. why Why did everybody else feel obliged to get vaccinated to, to get into the tournament? Did they feel that they weren't going to get the same preferential treatment? Did they feel like they weren't going to be lucky enough to catch COVID in December in time to make it in for, for Melbourne? And none of it really makes sense from a player perspective. And it, would be more, it will be more fascinating to see as the tournament goes underway, once the final decision is made, what the widespread player opinion is. I mean, there's certainly people who are friendly with Djokovic who will support him 
regardless of whether or not they've been vaccinated, but there are others I, I would imagine who are going to want to make a crack about this because this has just become a farce. Yeah, that's exactly the word to use this way. And that may not be legal jargon, but it is a farce. I, I would agree with you. And just, again, we want to talk about the tennis here. We're going to get to that, I promise, on this show. Djokovic's visa being rescinded is not the storyline I expected us to start 2022 with. You would have figured, again, he would have traveled there with the utmost confidence that this was either going to happen and he was going to get in or he wasn't going to travel there at all. And that has been the furthest thing from the case here. Just, again, all aspects of this saga surrounded by confusion and we still don't have a clear-cut solution. So I'll talk to you tomorrow when it seems like we will have a clear-cut solution after the final piece of this trial. A couple of other things I want to get to before we talk week two. A, we got the announcement today, and it had been floating around, and I think people had heard about it. We were waiting for it, of course. Another thing, if you didn't tweet this in 2021 where you were part of tennis Twitter, oh, why doesn't tennis have an F1 show? I think I'm the first person who've ever thought of this. Um, Yeah, obviously the popularity of Formula One Drive to Survive, the – increased attention being paid to formula one by american sports fans in particular following that netflix series it was significant and thus everyone was looking for something like that in tennis to you know raise interest in the sport learn more about these stars behind the scenes and i we can talk about whether you know the difficulties of executing this knowing tennis players like we know them will they be willing to be forthright and candid enough to make this series interesting that's a separate conversation we can have in a second but we did get the announcement you know, this is happening. This this tennis show will be happening on Netflix. And shout out to uh, all of the people firing in all of the various segments. Some of my favorite were Sets in the City from Jeff Sackman. That was very funny. Uh, that was a pretty uh, good one. I like Tossin's Creek. That was pretty funny as well. I threw in a Kerber, Your Enthusiasm. I don't hate that one. Game of Thrones, emphasis on the owns. Like, come on. That's a pretty good one. Meyer of Easttown, Meyer Sharif instead of Mayor of Easttown. Come on, David. You're smiling. Listeners, he's smiling right now, just so you know. I love I mean, a there, pun. Yeah, there's some other good ones. You know, instead of Mr. Rogers, Mrs. Rogers can always do things like that. There are more of those out there if you want to find them. You know, bend it like Brady. Who needs bend it like Beckham? Um, all of that said, your thoughts on this announcement? Well, I, it's funny. It's, it, it, the lesson from this development is always read the article because when yeah. the headline came out that the story of Djokovic's visa will be covered in a Netflix documentary, I just assumed that this was just an issue of people deciding to document this in a documentary. I didn't, yeah. I didn't associate it with the ATP slash WTA Netflix series, which I did know to be in the works. I'm, I, I assume I'm allowed to say that now. I'm sure I'm going to get a, a note from the WTA telling me otherwise, but uh, I certainly knew it was coming for the last several months. I know that there's been shortlists floated around of players who want to be involved. There did seem to be some interest. Um, it's a, it's an interesting one. I mean, there certainly hasn't been a ton of this in the past from tennis. There's some, some, some classics, I think from the early two thousands floating around on YouTube, perhaps that kind of go inside the WTA tour. Um, the ATP and WTA or Tennis Channel for that matter have done their own documentarian work, but to have sort of a comprehensive look at life on tour from both ATP and WTA perspectives is gonna be an interesting one. I mean, there are so many personalities and I think now more than ever, there are so many players who could potentially 
come out of a tournament winning a grand slam that you kind of can't go wrong with the cast it's not like if you don't have the focus on one player in particular well that's half the story because they're they're picking up all the majors i think you could potentially have a a cast of eight women cast of eight men and from that have your four your four to eight grand slam champions in the mix there are certainly making it deep so I think that makes it a bit easier from a casting perspective, but otherwise, yeah, I think it's going to be, there are so many moving parts to a tennis tournament for those who've been on site and certainly for those who've been behind the scenes that there, and there are so many perspectives, whether it's staff, tournament directors, players, coaches, physios, hitting partners. I mean, there are so many characters that you can spotlight and they're going to give some phenomenal sound bites that, uh, yeah, I'm certainly looking forward to it. And it's been long overdue. Back to the futures. Come on. That's a pretty good one. Uh, I think it's just be called Inside Out, like in, Un- Untitled Tennis Project. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what it is, that. whatever it is called now. Yeah, exactly. Um, no, my my question is: Will players be as forthright and candid as they claim they're willing to be throughout this whole process? Because tennis players are finicky. Like, there's no denying that. And if you've been around them enough, a a lot of them, you got to be homeschooled to be traveling enough to do all of the high-level tennising they do in their junior careers and you know for a lot of them again I mean some are I don't want to typecast all of them but it's a very interesting knitting of personalities and there are rivalries intertwined with those personalities as well that hopefully they'll be able to capture but a it'll be fascinating like who are the players you'd like to see them follow most I'm curious well, I mean, first of all, as an avid reality TV fan myself, I wouldn't underestimate the power of the first season. The first yeah. season is is often always the best of reality TV shows, especially if you're, if you're following the same characters from year to year, because they're always the most honest the first season. They're always yeah. the least aware of the cameras and are probably going to say something that maybe they'll end up regretting. I, knowing these players as I do, as much as I, as much as I do, I don't feel like there's going to be a tremendous amount of like huge earth shattering controversy. I feel like a lot of them are fairly savvy on social media we're seeing some we are seeing some developing personalities on social media even the banter between on and annette contavite i mean two players that i, I mean owns is sort of a notorious character but i certainly wouldn't have expected her to bring out this kind of charisma mm-hmm. from annette who typically you know is more insular and keeps to herself it's been it's been fascinating to see that friendship sort of develop in front of the public but i think there are so many characters i mean the one that always comes to my head and i pushed very hard in whenever i was asked my opinion on who should be on the show was you got to cast anastasia potapova i mean i have been interviewing (laughs) her since she was a junior and she is just a firecracker she is hilarious like the, the way that she sees the world the way that she strings her sentences together fluent in english like you can't go wrong with those that sort of young um bubbly vivacious um gregarious that was the word i was looking for just those ones that will talk about anything for as 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 long as you'll as long as you listen to them amarta kostyuk for example the players that you can ask a question and they'll just go i think those are the players that if they can get the mics in front of them they'll just be allowed to kind of really paint the picture of the tour and i think this is a unique opportunity every like to your point everybody has seen the f1 documentary series including annette (laughs) when i asked Mm -hmm. her what tv show she's been binge watching um I think they're excited by this and I don't think they're going to take it for granted, I would hope. And again, there are so many personalities on tour that if you don't have one, there are three others who are going to fill in the gaps. I mean, even from 
on the American side, a Bethany, a Daniel Collins. And I think the ATP are starting to open up in their own way too. I mean, Casper Ruud is becoming quite an interesting media personality. He's, he did some stuff for Tennis Channel. He's done some stuff for, for Yonix. I think he's even going to be contributing some media features for Eurosport. I mean, someone who kind of understands the media game, I think. And then even former players would be interesting to get their perspective because a lot of them are very much interwoven on tour. All of which to say, I'm, I'm really excited for it and I'll be watching every episode. I give I and we're hoping I'm sure we will be doing content around it as soon as it's available for everyone to watch. I mean, hopefully, I, I'll be getting advanced copies. Yeah, can I give you? <laughs> yeah, seriously. And by the way, if you want to watch them together, screen share on Zoom. I'm in. Um, can I give you some proposed locks, like some players? I just think there is no doubt they're going to be on the show, or at least asked. And you go can off, tell me if I'm right I certainly or wrong. didn't. I certainly didn't give you a very fluid list right there. I give you no, one player. That's good. <laughs> Coco Goff. There's no way they don't ask Coco Goff. Yes? Uh, yeah. Spoiler, yeah. <laughs> Can you give me tacit yeses or no? Yeah, I don't want to get you in trouble here. No, I mean, it's my, someone asked me on, someone texted me earlier. They said, oh, who's been cast? And I said, to be honest, I don't really think that that's, the filming process has really begun. I mean, I guess evidently yeah. it has if, if they're covering with Djokovic, but I, the, the answer I would give is that if you're looking down the list, the players who you would think would be involved are very much involved. Yeah. The, and I'm talking about the younger, the young guns, the sort of established veterans who like to be in front of the media. I mean, mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see whether they can get Serena and Venus. I mean, Venus and Serena aren't really on tour all that much. So it, it's sort of a, a push and pull. And then it also with Venus and Serena are very much documentarians themselves. I mean, the stuff that Serena's been able to put out the last couple of years has been very interesting too. So I think the players who are below that sort of threshold of, you know, worldwide global celebrity fame mm-hmm. are, I think are going to be very down for this. And I this think hopefully, saying. yeah. Yeah. O- Osaka. I don't think so. Barty. Eh, we'll see. Sloan Stevens. Like I know not to be too American centric. I think you can lock Sloan Stevens in right now. Um, I would say Muguruza. You probably – she got the offer. That's a bubble one to me. I think it will be one of Halep or Pliskova because they'll try to get that old guard. Like, you know, you know, they're the veterans on the two or whatever. It will be one of those players. I mean, if they're smart, they're casting friends. Like Sloan yeah. and Maddie are good friends. Donna Vekic and Belinda Bencic, good friends. I mean, you're going to want to be able to get those sort of dynamics – anyway so to be able to cast both of them cast a wider net and and even in negotiations well we've got we've got belinda donna are you involved are you in we're gonna be mm-hmm. filming your lunch anyway you know like it's that sort <laughs> of that sort of back and forth you know the dangers the pitfalls of reality well that's TV. what's gonna be interesting are they gonna go player centric are they gonna go week by week centric because again you're not gonna get the same players every week you do have action every week it's going to be fascinating. On the it also men's... feels like a yeah. It also feels like a massive jinx to be able oh, to like 100%. say at the start of the year. I mean, how many times has my tennis life, the player, not made it to the end of the season? It, there's RIP, the my CC tennis Bellis. life. In, yeah, exactly. There's a my tennis life injury bug that they all were getting injured. You know, every year they were doing it. I agree with you. And so it's like, it's interesting. For, I, on the men, I would told Mianovich made it through the season. I'm shocked. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> on, on the men's the men, side. Yeah, sorry. I'm just trying <laughs> to think, like, who would be entertaining? I mean, you I can mean, get the Russians, like, just plural. That's a good group to ensconce yourself with. Or envelop. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, Tiafo would be a blast. Baratini, uh, speaking of Tomajanovic. Bublik. Bublik could oh. be dangerously fun. Dangerously yeah. fun. Get me a week with Sasha Bublik. Give me, I could do a full episode on that. It's also, like, I'm fascinated to learn who the producers of the show will be because – 
there's a nuance to tennis. There's also a language to tennis. And again, this, if you've been around tennis players your whole life, you understand, especially the serious ones, they do kind of live in their own world. It's going to be interesting to see how the producers navigate that world and how familiar they are with that because that is no – and I'm sure the tours have smart people working on it. But it, that it's no – it's not as simple. You know, again, there are so many components to an F1 team. You've got the driver. You've got the constructor. You've got it, – it's pretty clear-cut how it all works. It is not clear-cut how the tennis works, not from a scheduling perspective, not from a starting perspective, all of these different things. Structuring a TV show around all those uncertainties, enjoy. Like, good luck. Absolutely. I mean, you, you want smart producers who ask the right questions, and then you also want to get scenes where – the players with someone who'll get them to open up. I mean, there's like that famous gif of I think of Isha asking Serena Williams, how, how come you and Venus are, and Serena, how come you and Venus are in the top 10, even though you never play? And then Serena just goes, I don't know. <laughs> like yeah. That kind of like moment is, is gold. And like, that's what you're going to hope to catch and be that fly on the wall for. But then to help move things along, you want those producers who kind of have a sense of where these players are. And that will then fall on the comms teams from the ATP and WTA respectively, who are going to fill in the gaps for them because you have to it's it is like it's like catching up on a 30-year soap opera kind of all and then drinking from a fire hose because you're not to mix my metaphors because you're just <laughs> there's so much to catch up on there's so many players so many dynamics Th- these two are friends these two these two don't like each other this one you know just beat the other one in a grand slam final there's all these there's so there's a whole molehill mountain of content that um, a mountainous molehill of content that i, I hope is, is well mined and well excavated yeah, and so with that in mind, I, do you have a, any uh, title preferences? You didn't slip any in there. I'm, I'm going with Untitled Tennis Project. I just feel like all the puns are so one-player-centric, and everything that uh-huh. I know to be about this project is that it's going to cover Ready everybody. Again, Inside Out. Just call it Inside Out. We're getting the Inside Out look at the tour, Inside Out forehand. It, uh, it's a deep cut for the tennis oh, I, fans. I got one. Lee Daniels, the boobleck. <laughs> Lee Daniels, the boobleck. <laughs> He's not the producer, as far as I know. That's good. Uh, shout out to The Butler. Great film. Great film. All right. One other thing I wanted to talk about uh, before we get to the tennis, and this is tennis-centric, and I've made this joke on a couple of podcasts, but I actually want to talk about it with someone who I know thinks about these things. And I'm curious if you're a voter. If you are, you got to tell me how to get on this list. Got all my stickers on the freezer. Oh, no. you mean, oh, you mean, <laughs> you mean <laughs> Hall of Fame voting? There it is. He knows right away. <laughs> No Hall of Fame for the uh, new nominees for the first time in the Hall of Fame's existence. Obviously, the Hall of Fame Brutal. founded in 1955. I think the angriest Ben Rothenberg has ever gotten at me. We were having an argument. He's like, well, fine. If it's the Hall of Very Good, Alex, then you're right. But it's not the Hall of Very Good. It's the Hall of Fame. And I was like, all right. I was like, I pushed the button. Let's go. Um, but no Hall of Fame new nominees. And this was a class that included Ivanovich. This is a class that included some others as well. Again, no one gets in. Your response. Are you a voter? I did not vote. And maybe I would have been the one to push someone over the thresholds. They got to they get me on that mailing. I'm certainly on the Hall of Fame mailing list for other things. I don't know why yeah. I didn't get the ballot. Um, I must have gotten lost in the mail. Yeah, I mean, looking at the ballot, it was certainly a less convincing mix. There wasn't a Justine Enna or even a Marit Safin or even a Lina sort of jumping to the forefronts of the discussion. I mean, sentimentally, I mean, you remember what Flavia Panetta was able to do. You remember what Anna Ivanovic was able to do. The first Serb to win a Grand Slam title for Serbian woman. Not in Serb, no, because Djokovic won uh, the previous um, major in Australia that year. And then obviously Monica Seles, Yugoslavian, Serbian, that's the whole 
other ethnic issue that I don't want to touch. But I mean, I, I did kind of think Cara Black or Lisa Raymond would get the nod. I mean, they're certainly very accomplished doubles players. I mean, it goes to show that I think if either of those players had the singles, the same resume, but singles, I think they would have gotten in. No question. I That's think NCAA the champion Lisa Raymond. Go on. Who follows me on Twitter? Hi, Lisa. Follow uh, you know, me as well. Shout out Lisa. Only the best on Lisa yeah. Raymond's Twitter feed. Uh, it's <laughs> it's one of those things where that it's that inherent lack of appreciation, especially for two of the more like workmanlike players that you that wasn't going to match the flashiness of Asanya Mirza, who I imagine conversely will probably have a shot at the Hall of Fame. Asanya Mirza is just a historical trailblazer, a lightning rod for all kinds of um, discussion, feminism, in you know being a, a pioneer for Indian tennis. I do think she will get the nod in a way that maybe an Anastasia Mesquina or a Anna Vanovich or even a Flavia Panetta have not gotten. Be interesting to see what happens with Francesca Schiavone. I feel like she hasn't been up for discussion. She was the first Italian woman, right, to win a major title. So, I mean, I would have I would have put her up maybe even before Flavia, but I guess maybe the combination of Flavia singles and doubles and maybe some mixed in there, like maybe that helped her over the edge. I mean, it's rough to have a group of them and for none of them to make it. I mean, it feels like once you put together a list of nominees, you're basically saying that these meet the criteria to make your Hall of Fame. And so that's it's brutal to be on that list and then to have a whole fan vote and then for them to still say, actually, we're not. I don't know if I would have made that call to say none of these people are making it to the Hall of Fame. I feel like you kind of have, gosh, you couldn't have just like snuck Cara Black in or Lisa Raymond. Like it, that's a rough one. I mean, I, I kind of did think that Anna would make it in, especially for just for logistical reasons. She's based in the States right now. She's very popular. I was shocked she didn't win the fan vote. I mean, people still love Anna. She's one of those characters and, and personalities that people remember from the last decade of tennis and was very much you know, a leading light on the tour for the time that she was playing, even when she wasn't maybe the most relevant. I mean, there is that story of her peaking as a young player, winning her first major title, having those struggles and towards the end of the year, finally figuring it out, making another French Open semifinal, you know, being a, an immediate rival of Maria Sharapova in 2014, 2015. I mean, there was an argument for Ivanovich that I, I, I could have seen possibly making. Yeah, it's 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 a tough one. I mean, I, I, I probably lost some of my... Um, I got a little disillusioned when Mesquina didn't make it in because I really wanted to see her make the Hall of Fame. I would have loved to hear that speech. I mean, if you're, if you're going by speeches there, I certainly would have wanted to see Flavia. I would have wanted to see Anna and even Mesquina, but uh, it's tough. And I don't know how um, what the ballot will look like next year, but hopefully it's somebody who makes the, the threshold of 75% or whatever it is to make it over the finish line. Who is the one person in your Twitter life who like most unexpected person to like all of your tweets or most unexpected person you interact with most frequently? Ideally, I imagine it would be a real housewife who just is like, this guy gets the show. Here is the gifts. He understands. I mean, this whole tennis career is really just a long con for me to eventually become a real housewives journalist. Uh, no, I mean... I mean, the day that Elena Viznina followed me on Twitter was a very good day. <laughs> you could kind of feel her circling, like she was liking yeah. some of my tweets, and then eventually I just got the nod. And I was, she's not on Twitter as often as I as as I would like. Um, yeah. I, I, or I, she I, is, David. And... I did bring her up during the draw ceremony when there was no draw. I said, oh, I'm yeah. just going to give it. I'm just going to call it now. 2022 Australian Open champion Elena Viznina. We miss you, girl. Tamira <laughs> uh, Pasek is the one that likes my tweets, who I adore. Was one of the my first major interviews, and is on somewhat of a comeback trail in very small tournaments. I'm looking forward to kind of getting some wins together because I would love to have a conversation with her. She's hinted at perhaps some issues with mental health that I would love to get that story out, but I, I want to see where this, this comeback goes from here, or at least get some more data points. But yeah, the, 
I've got some, I've got some good follows and I recommend that you follow me for some hilarious memes and quotes and retweets. I, I kind of try to give you a little bit of everything at DKTNNS, DKTNNS. I like it. Intelligence as well. For me, it's Maroon 5 guitarist James Valentine. Damn. Who, like, I get, like, you know, believe me, it's the most random thing in the world. But I would say he likes at least two tweets a week. Like, he might just really like his tennis fix. And God willing, if you're listening to this podcast, James Valentine, open invite, my friend. Like, believe me, I'm happy to talk tennis. I want to hear your thoughts. If you guys are performing in indie, give me a call. I'm here. He sees Rude. your tweets and says he will be loved. I, I see him and I say, sugar, yes, please. And I just, you know, we keep going. Yeah, again, I'm hurt. Takes you out of your misery. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, I've seen those hips. Moves like 69-year-old Jagger. Um, but, <laughs> no, it's um, – all of that said, I don't know why I brought that up. I just I, – it's because I tweeted something about Madison Keys yesterday and I got the the – James Valentine like and I was like damn this guy's committed to the game I'm like if he's the bar watching- is at waffles for random <laughs> from random commentary so I'm good either way <laughs> oh, by the way I had a, a pre-nap what did I eat a Belgian uh, a, a thick and fluffy waffle and right to sleep um, now with so- extra tryptophan yeah <laughs> half the carbs double the tryptophan no they slip MSG in now they're like come on <laughs> let's just make it more addicting um, alright with all that said some tennis talk before I let you go. Let's let's put a bow on week two. And some of these players we talked about in our Women's Dark Horse podcast episode that listeners can go find on the Great Shot podcast feed right now. It ended up being a Great Shot podcast, by the way, forever it's worth. With that in mind, one of the players we brought up has been a superstar here in week two, Madison Keys, who you threw – I don't want to say – you didn't – you know, it wasn't like super soaker sorts of water on – But you were a little bit skeptical of my inclusion of her as a dark horse. Now, yesterday, three-set win over Coco Goff. That comes on the heels of a three-set win over Ludmilla Samsonova, which came on the heels of a straight-set win over Martin Sova, which I believe also came on the heels of a straight-set win over Svitolina. Madison Keys is playing some good ball, David. I don't want to say you have the right to rescind your pick because you know this game far deeper than I do. Just, you know, again, veteran of the game. But your thoughts on her performance this week? I mean, I don't want to say I threw Madison under the bus. I do feel like I gave her something of a Viking funeral. And of course, once I went <laughs> full out on that, she goes and beats Coco Goff, which I did I did say would be something of an inflection match. However, mm-hmm. that said, I feel like I'm back on the Coco Goff roller coaster where I, I was here I was hyping up her 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 strong mind and mental toughness, and she loses another sort of, you know, rough match to Madison Keys where she was up a set and then doesn't 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 take it over the finish line. It's, a little concerning now but first two matches of the season tough ones tough losses that maybe she should have walked away with against elite players conservatively or rather optimistically you could say she's close she's closer than she's ever been to getting these consistent wins over big players and hopefully you know she just needs another bite of the apple all she needs is to be optimistic about that and, and believe that these good wins are coming and not be knocked down by sort of the disappointment of these sort of nervy losses in the end for Madison. But yeah, I mean, she certainly has talked about feeling very positive this week. Madison Keys feeling like she wants to take every match as if it's her last, given her struggles with injury and consistency. It's a good mentality to have. We have seen Madison Keys peak at major, um, both at major tournaments and at major warm-up tournaments. And then maybe didn't always carry it over the finish line, did win Cincinnati in a big, you know, a big cyclone of, of, of fabulous tennis in 2019. And then didn't necessarily carry it to the U S open. So it's a tough turnaround for these players who are playing finals today, potentially have to then play 
again on Monday in two days. It's, it's, it's a rough one. And it's not one of those, you know, necessarily a Barbara Krejcikova playing in Strasbourg, you know, in, in a field where she's, you know, considerably better. These are some, some battle royales we've been dealing with in, in, in Sydney and otherwise that, um, It'll, it'll be interesting to see how these players carry that momentum into Australia. It feels like after a certain after a certain round, there maybe are some diminishing returns the, the deeper you go in these events. And you can see maybe why um, some players would pull out <laughs> and, and give their walkovers before the, the slam actually started. But yeah, listen, I, I didn't expect Madison to win that match. She did. So big ups to her. And she's in a good state of mind. That's all you can ask for. Right. A confident Madison is just a completely different beast. And you know, we've talked about her draws, and I've actually looked at the draws now. I was forced, forced, I was asked to go on another show, and they were like, we're going to do draw predictions. I was like, all right, I'll break the seal. I'll go look at these things, although I'm going to have to relearn a new men's draw. And this is why you, again, reason 247, you always save the draw preview for last, folks. Those of you who are scheduling tennis podcasts out there, always save the draw preview for last, because you never know who's going to pull out before the event begins. I mean, still, there's not a big body of work to be confident on keys with, but it's that, you know, back-to-back three-set wins now, and her level has, she's managed to maintain that level. It wasn't just an early peak and, you know, pet her out throughout the course of the week. She's continued to sustain that level, striking the ball so cleanly. Case point, just go watch the return she hit on match point against Goff, and, like, Goff was serving well yesterday. Goff's moving extraordinarily well right now, and still, just... Keys had the bigger weapons. Keys hit her off the court, and you know Madison Keys has Ken in round one. She would uh, there's a potential rematch with Goff round three. If Madison Keys gets to week four, she'll have earned the confidence to be there, and just that is a scary notion, I think, for the rest of the field. And yeah, I, I'm I stand by everything I said yesterday. If you want to hear my extended Madison Keys thoughts, go check them out. But she's serving so well, and again, she's. A long-time weekend privilege member of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club. And so she has that gear where it's just on her terms. And it's going to be interesting to see how she matches up today with Allie Risk. Didn't play yesterday. Certainly, I would say Keys has had the better form of the two. It's a, that's a match she should win. It's a lot of tennis building up to a Grand Slam start. I think Keyes was fresh and ready for it. And I expect her to beat Risk in coming to this Australian Open with all of the momentum at her back. You certainly have to be confident to play that kind of baseball. I mean, I'll tell you that. <laughs> no doubt about that. And, you know, again, by the way, for Allie Risk, three all first set against Madison Brangle. Brangle retires. Zidanzik, withdraw. She hasn't played since her round of 16 match where she knocked out Kalanina one in three. So, Shay, bank those points, baby. Bank those points. Um, yeah, with all that said, that's tournament number one this week. You look at tournament number two, match of the year thus far. Krejcikova, 7-6 in the third over Annette Conteve. Bedosa, 2-2 two two over Kasekina. Your Conte- dark horse, Daria Kasekina. Yeah, but I and? still feel pretty good. Get, <laughs> get the loss out of the way now, right? We'll worry about winning when it's go time. Um, I mean, let's start with Krejcikova. I, I, I tweeted this out, I know, earlier today. I think, what is it? Krejcikova's like 46-15 and 15 or 45-15 and 15 since winning a title the week before the French Open and 11 of those 15 losses are to players who are currently in the top 10. 14 of the 15 are to players currently in the top 25. If you are not a top 10 player, you're not beating Krejcikova. If you're not top 25, you're probably, you know, again, even if you are top 25, you're probably not beating her unless you're top 10 either. 
you know, Conteve took the took the thunder. Raducanu winning the U.S. Open stole her thunder. What we've seen from Krejcikova is unprecedented. This run of success, this early in her consistent WTA singles career. I mean, it's the quietest favorite. She's like again. I saw someone strawmanning it on tennis Twitter. Why are you calling? Kre- I'm so sick of people calling Krejcikova as a dark horse. Point me to one person who has called Barbara Krejcikova a dark horse and not a favorite. She is a favorite. Like, it's not the flashiest game, but identify the weakness. I don't see it. You better play pretty damn well if you want to beat Krejcikova on any given day. And just, I I think, yesterday's match against Conteve proved that. I mean, I tweeted that the match had bagels and good tennis, which are two of my favorite (laughs) things. I was really excited for that scoreline. But, yeah, I mean, Krejcikova's a tricky one. I mean, a phenomenal game. You do have to watch that forehand. It might break down. And Barty did a really good job in Cincinnati breaking down that Krejcikova forehand with that extreme grip. I was surprised that Konsevite didn't take it over the finish line. I felt like some of those um, shots and points that she won to set up match point, the match, the points that she played to save match point, that's a rough one. I mean, certainly she seems to be taking it in stride, you know, having some laughs about it on Twitter. Um, but that's a, disappoint- that's a disappointing mm-hmm. loss after having all those opportunities. But that said, Krejcikova... To be able to, t- to be able to see both Kontavite and Krejcikova take this crazy level of momentum, seemingly out of nowhere momentum from 2021 into 2022, they're already winning. I mean, it's been so it's usually historically so tough to have a have a great season and immediately back it up in the way that that they've done. And I would add Bedosa to that conversation as well. Players who were just the stories of the summer and fall, and have really just picked up where they left off in January. I mean, this how many times have we seen players end the year? I mean, even going back to a personal favorite of mine, Dominica Sibylkova winning the the world the WTA finals in 2016 and really struggling to back that up immediately in 2017. I mean, there's just, the, it doesn't necessarily always translate that end of year form. You you run into that brick wall that is the off season. You have to start all over again with ex- with um, excess expectation. And then when you don't immediately back it up, then the momentum starts to fall. You start to doubt yourself. And then before you know it, it's like, where, where did that good form go? But um, Krejcikova, I think it really does speak to that doubles experience. I mean, she is a player who was used to elite matches, used to pressure situations, used to crazy tie breaks. I mean, all of it seemed to really play in her favor by the end of that match. And it's really been great to see after sort of the bumpy finish that she did have, as as, as much as she was really the story of the season, she did have some, some pitfalls, you know, most notably at the U.S. Open, really having to deal with the crowd, with Muguruza. You know, you wonder how a player who's so new to being solo on the stage, how they handle that kind of pressure and for her to come in and, and immediately make a final just just wipes all the doubt away from me. Yeah. She's no. been able to do this on hard courts and now clay courts are coming up in a couple of months. It just feels like everything's all going full circle for the check. She was horrible at the Billie Jean King Cup and did not have a yeah. good Guadalajara. And like horrible results wise. And that threw you off the scent because – she lost her last five matches, really, of the season. And, you, again, I think the hardcore fans weren't doubting her, but you watch her come in and just take care of business here and then get this come-from-behind win over Annette Conteve in in her first week of action. It's exactly what you wanted to see from her coming out here uh, in week number two. That said, she's going to get a test against Paula Bedosa, who did not play poorly in her first-round loss last week against Victoria Azarenka. Vika was just buzzsaw in that match but has backed it up 
Like, all this shows for Paula Bedosa is how real her end of the season was. And Bedosa doesn't have that Serena Williams power tennis country club aspect to her game. But she's moving so well right now and just can do a little bit of everything. It, it's Muguruza-ish, not to typecast, you know, all the Spaniards together. But it, it reminds you of Muguruza in the length that she has around the court and her ability to move and beat you to the spot and absorb redirect pace. Again, I think Muguruza generates a bit more pace on her own. I'd say Bedosa probably a bit more fluid as an athlete, but there's a lot to like about Paula. Again, the way Paula Bedosa is a, can match up pretty well with just about anyone. Notorious PPG. I mean, I am just so, <laughs> I continue to be so impressed, especially coming off of that Azarenka loss to start the season, I was worried where things were going from here because as well as Azarenka played, this was another match where Bedosa seemingly had no answers, you know, tracing back to her match against Muguruza in Guadalajara, then going to Azarenka, you know, two very accomplished opponents, but not really being able to push them in a way that you want to see someone who's trying to make that that push into elite level tennis, just not having that answer. But then coming here, played some doubles with Vika, you know, shook off the loss, came here and Aesthetically, I can see some of the comparisons to Muguruza's game. They both have some of the better technique on tour, but where I would say that Bedosa almost excels, where she maybe lacks pace, is in the versatility. I mean, the way that she's able to pull off some of these winners and really abbreviate her motions, particularly off the backhand side, some of the winners she was able to hit against Kasakina when she was ostensibly out of position. When you are not one of the more natural athletes on tour as, as good as as good of a as good of an athlete as Bedosa is maybe not the most natural mover to be able to rely on your technique to dig yourself out of corners and hit winners on the run I mean that's money on on the WTA tour for sure and and to be able to now come into this final against Krejcikova who she is I think to this point undefeated against didn't lose a set to her in either of her matches in 2021 last coming uh in Indian Wells on hard courts close friends the two of them I mean the way that they've been able to you know, carry this momentum together through um, through the spring to the summer. And now, I mean, it's for Bedosa, it's really all playing with house money because she is not really defending any points. I mean, this time last year, she was in a hotel trying to figure out if she was going to get the requisite PCR test to get out of hotel quarantine, stuck with sick with coronavirus. So between now and the beginning of February, there's nothing. She's just gaining points, whereas the players above her are quickly losing them. And so you could potentially see with a good run in Australia, Paola Bedosa, top four, top three, you know, it's really making a push for that second part of the season. Obviously, a lot of points to defend on clay, but with all that confidence, momentum built up from hard courts, the sky's really the limit for her. I agree with you. I It's just, again, what's the weakness? There's no easily identifiable, attackable part of her game. Yeah, she'll leave some second serves hanging. Everyone does that. Yeah, doesn't overwhelm you like Sabalenka with the ground strokes, but gets great depth and moves the ball so well around the court. Uh, this Krejcikova uh, Bedosa, because I think they're in the same section of the draw in the Australian Open. I may be wrong about that. I think they're in that bottom half of the top half of the draw. Um, this yes. could be a, very much a quarterfinal preview. This is a very, very interesting final uh, here in Sydney. Hopefully we get to see both players at their best. They still have a little bit more time uh, before their first round matches. So that is what's happening in week two here on the women's side, of course. Worth saying, Annette Conteve, she looks ready. Kasakina, she looks ready as well. But with that in mind, let's end here on the men. The cock, Tanasi Kokonakis, into an ATP final, just proven his start to this season is real. And despite all of the injuries that have derailed him, and I know it's first ATP final since I think 2017 or 19, one of the two, I forget. Um, 
it's how fit he is. Just again, guy has played three-set match after three-set match. Yesterday, it was against Chilich the round before that. It was against Vukic the round before that. It was against Isner, played a bunch of them last week. And look, for Kokonakis, yeah, would be great for him to get a big run at the Australian Open in front of his home crowd. But this ATP success and the weeks leading up to it is far more valuable for him as he looks towards this 2022 season because it's the stash of points he's now banked here. At the start of the year, he's up to number 116 in the live rankings. He's got a very winnable match against Arthur Rindernesh, former Texas A&M All-American, who very much epitomizes modern ATP game. 6-5, big serve, big forehand, fluid, though, off of both wings. You know, for Kokonakis, a win today gets him up to number 103 in the live rankings. If he gets this title, boy, would that be a blessing. For Arthur Rindernesh, he's in the top 50 for the first time of his career, 48 in the live rankings. I mean, again, Chilich is now 13-4, and four, I think, in his last five events. He's playing really well uh, and has an open section in that bottom half of the draw. Um, you know, again, Quarantine Mute, lefty. Great for him to make that next-gen finals push, that Paris push at the end of last season. Semi-final him, for him to back things up to start the year, obviously, excellent as well. Let's start with Adelaide. Your response to all of it. Kokonakis is in Adelaide, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. God. Okay. <laughs> what a feel good story. I mean, from Kokonakis, I mean, you look at him in that sort of generation of, um, of lost boys, uh, from that Aussie contingent, when you look at Tomic and Curios, I mean, Kokonakis hasn't been part of the picture for much of those last several years and last several years and not for lack of trying. I mean, there's just been so many injury issues and, and it does give you pause when he is playing this many matches before a grand slam. You think, Oh my God, please like hold it, like just hold it together through the slam. Just like make it through. Um, just a fan favorite. I think no one really has a bad word to say about him. You know, it's, it's, that's probably one of the, one of the best in, in, in a, in a, in a men's environment where we haven't talked enough about the tennis. That's a tennis story that, um, that people really should be talking about because that's a, that's a really great one. And hopefully, hopefully he's found the formula. Hopefully he's found the formula to stay healthy because his game is fun to watch. He's a compelling personality. He's got that fun earring, all of it. Just really excited for him. Um, He's got that fun earring. Like that fun pirate earring. It's really, it's, it's, <laughs> it gets me every time. Um, <laughs> otherwise, yeah, it, it, when you talk about the men's tennis right now, it just feels like Djokovic has taken up so much of the oxygen that it feels hard to really absorb most of the non-Djokovic stuff. Coconut is definitely my number one story for sure. Yeah, I mean, I'm big on the Rindernesh bandwagon. He's got a really fun first round match against Kyle Edmund Light aka Alexi Popperin in round number one and so, is that what they call him <laughs> yeah that's, watch the games that's what I call him um Rinder Nash can ball but you're right Kokonakis winning a title in front of the Australian crowd you know Kyrgios jokes about retirement all the time if I'm Kokonakis I mean from a money perspective obviously he can't do this but I'd be like I'm good let's call it quits that I got back to this point I just cannot believe it with all the injuries he's undergone and he was able to play a full year of challenger matches last year speaks to how valuable that is but again like the size of this group it's so funny Rindernesh Chilich 6'5 6'6 Kokonakis big guy and then Mute like you just got him hanging out here in Adelaide again yeah, it, this Kokonakis story, if Djokovic wasn't happening, this is what we would be talking about. I would also say Tommy Paul's looked really good. Like, yeah, he lost in three to Chilich. Chilich is playing lights out, and I think Tommy's playing really, really well. And if there is no Djokovic, if he's withdrawn from that top half, 
didn't Tommy just beat Andre Rublev? Because I think that's scenarios that Rublev would go into the Djokovic spot. Didn't Tommy just beat Rublev in New York? And, like, that's the section of the draw Tommy's in. There's a world where he makes the fourth round. If there is no Djokovic in this draw, Tommy Paul is in that little section of the draw. And, like, he would be one of the immediate beneficiaries. Not in New York, because that was TFO. Oh, it's TFO. But But didn't Tommy beat someone? That does feel, that sounds Oh, no, he beat him at Indian Wells. He beat him at Indian Wells. That's what it was. Yeah, Yeah. because I was like, I I know he beat Rublev somewhere. Um, but it was it wasn't New York. Thank you for correcting me. It was indeed Indian Wells last year. Yeah, I, just, I pointed you in the right direction. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's good teamwork. Again, that that was like serve tea, Alex high forehand poach put away money. Um, yeah. Wait, are you a lefty? No. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Because you just for listeners, why do I ask that question? He did the put away volley with his left hand, and I was like, what? David Kane, lefty? The, what? A Lisa Raymond backhand volley. <laughs> yeah. What a what a swirl. Hall of there. Fame volley. By the way, on a podcast, I don't know if it was with Nina on the air or off the air. I think it was on the air where she referred to the fact David Kane, great name, great name, just for whatever it's worth. And so, Thanks so much. I yeah, love her voice. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. Um, all right. On the flip side, let's talk Muzzy. Andy Murray, three-set win over Riley Opelka. He's got Karatsev next. That's a fascinating match. Karatsev, a three-set win over Dan Evans. Karatsev, he's played better and better tennis. Three sets over Sinego, three sets over Evans these past two rounds. Obviously, for Murray, the the three-set win over Basilashvili. He was up break in set number one. Let that set get away from him. I mean, last night, Opelka was unbroken through his first eight sets of the season. Murray gets him 6-4, 6-4 in sets two and three. I think Riley's playing really well. I think Dan Evans is playing really well. I think Karatsev's playing really well. I can't believe Andy Murray can move the way he can now. Like, the the, the lengths he's progressed between Wimbledon and now. Shout out to modern medicine. Like, this is why you should get vaccinated. If yeah. scientists can make Andy Murray move this way nowadays, you don't trust them with a vaccine? Like, I'm sorry. You're just wrong. Yeah, I mean, we didn't get the all Brit- British final that some of my British uh, Twitter followers were, were kind of starting to hype up a little bit, but we did get a really compelling battle between who will smile first between two of the more serious gents on tour and Murray and Karatsev. Karatsev, who was coming in with a mountain of points to defend at the Australian Open, the fact that he's been able to start the season as positively as he did, even if he doesn't end up defending all those semifinal points, just a great uh, mood booster coming into Melbourne, knowing that he doesn't necessarily have to defend all of them, that he has actually done some of the, the harder work before even heading into the tournament. But Murray, again, just, you know, sort of, again, to compare to Djokovic, sort of the antithesis of a Djokovic right now. I mean, the fact that while headlines about Djokovic appealing for the right to compete in this tournament unvaccinated, there are headlines about Andy Murray talking about how he turned down a seven-figure deal to compete in Saudi Arabia because he disagreed with their human rights violations. I mean, this is just sort of, you can't get two more polar opposite people right now, especially when you think that, you know, Nigel Farage is hanging out with the Djokovic family in Serbia. I mean, it really is just black and white when you when you look at it through that, through the, that sort of lens. But yeah, I mean, Murray sort of the it sort of feels like a reverse psychology sort of comeback for Murray a lot of the times where you feel like he's got to play quick matches and it seems like every match he plays is long and goes the distance where hopefully the better he continues to move the more efficient he can make these matches I mean that will certainly give everybody a a sigh of relief they feel like that he can actually go deeper into these tournaments because he's got to conserve his energy as well as he's playing now hopefully he can you know recover in time to play Melbourne again this sort of that double-edged sword of playing so close to the slam you're getting that confidence and momentum, but what are you sacrificing in terms of physicality? So it'll be interesting to see how that final plays out. Karatsev probably going to keep points short, big hitter. So I think that's sort of an ideal situation where he knows he's not going to have to play a really physical final. 
Um, but yeah, shoot two guys who you're really looking for to make a, a, a smash start to 2022. And they already did it. And I wanted to add about Chilich. He was my pick to be one of the comeback players of 2022 alongside Naomi Osaka in the latest issue of Tennis Magazine on newsstands now. Uh, and he works in the plugs, my folks. That's why he continues to get the return invite. There's just the human aspect of Murray that I've always been gravitated to, which as a tennis player, I think anyone inherently relates to where you just scream at yourself and you're a perfectionist and you're so angry at making the error. and Relatable. Just, yeah, exa- that's what makes Murray Murray. I just love how human he is out there on court. And, you know, again, he's going to get the ice wall in Aslan Karatsev next. That's going to be just a fun dynamic between the two Karatsev trying to take that ball early on the rise, keep Murray stretched in the outer thirds, which of course is not where he wants to be, though he does look so much better as a mover. Yeah, it's, I'm all in. Like, again, uh, Murray's back. I, I used to think, again, Wimbledon-wise, I was like, yeah, he can get top 100 again. Sure, he can get top 50. I don't think he's ever going to be at a grand slam, a factor at a grand slam. I still don't think he's going to be a factor in terms of the latest stages of a grand slam. But he can get back to the top 25 now. And again, three years ago, we had a retirement ceremony for him at this event. That is no longer the case, or two years ago, whatever it was. It's been a fun week, too. Like, I I really do think the players playing look rejuvenated. The quality of tennis this early in the season has been pretty high, David. Yeah, the Australian Open really did roll out a full retirement ceremony for a player who (laughs) never retired. I mean, they. It's, they're really their fingers are really on the pulse. Yeah, no, it's, <laughs> you know, it's unbelievable. In all respects. <laughs> it's unbelievable. Again, and Craig Tiley's probably gonna get a raise coming out of all of this. They'll be like, you know what? We don't pay you enough. Here you go. Uh you managed to I mean, again, we can talk Australian open financials a different time when this tournament is over, but they've been On Patreon. A, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> um, but they've been taking a bath in it anyways, and so Oh, this entire thing is fascinating. More than anything else, let's just get the tennis underway. I'm ready to make picks. I'm ready to watch these matches unfold. I'm sure you are as well. Of course, again, I'm already booking you for tomorrow night when we're going to talk about all this, uh, all the latest developments, latest and greatest in the Djokovic saga when we finally get our conclusive answer. But as always, DK, our, I think our people know where to find you at this point, but give us the plugs. What, what, what can we expect over the next couple of days? Where can we read it all? And took a tough loss. Roman Safiulin lost uh, from a set in, I don't know how many games, up to Liam Brody, who is pulling off a phenomenal flamingo outfit. So I couldn't be that disappointed. <laughs> but all that said, all my work can be found at tennis.com, baseline, Twitter and Instagram, DKTNNS. I, too, am looking forward to the adrenaline that I assume is going to come with the the onslaught of first-round matches. I'm, I admit I'm not feeling it yet, but hopefully by Sunday night I'll be like a light. Friday night, 10.50 p.m., what's your late-night food of choice? If you're just – you've earned it this week. Great week for the features. We got three front-page tennis magazine. That's not how it works, I know. But you've earned it this week, let's say. What's the binge meal that you're going to? Is it like a full pizza? Is it it a sushi deal? What are we talking, DK? So last week was – last year it was clementines because I really needed that that vitamin boost. I've actually been trying to – I've been trying to detox That's the saddest thing I've – that's the saddest excuse for a late-night meal I've ever heard. There's something really cathartic about like kind of opening – like unpeeling the clementine while you're waiting for a 2.45 in the morning press conference to start. It's something kind of like – it keeps the mind going. It's it's, it's the wordle before wordle. That is the saddest thing you could have offered me. I I did the same thing with Gil Gross. I was like, what's your favorite candy candy bar? You're at the gas station. Give me one. And he said, F- Butterfingers. 
I was so angry. I was like, dude, we're going to stop Gilbert. this now. I was like, we're <laughs> stopping this now. I was like, you know, I'm calling you. By the way, I, in your intro moving forward, it'll be he likes clementines because now for Gil, it's he likes Butterfingers. Like, I'm trying to detox, man. I have been going crazy on mini Reese's peanut butter cups. They're the Valentine's variety oh, lately. You mean these mini Reese's peanut butter cups? See, those are for chumps. You want to get the holiday <laughs> variety because they are the freshest. And at the Target around the corner – you get that bite. I feel like a crazy person. I'm explaining it to people. No, it's that bite. And you just crack into that no, fresh Reese's you know peanut butter cup. You got the fresh peanut butter. I agree. And the holiday version, it's a little fluffier, the peanut butter in there. Like, I totally understand what you're saying. Fresher. <laughs> yeah. See, you think I'm not a veteran of the game that I can't talk Reese's <laughs> peanut butter preferences, please. The reason we I got this. Other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I went to Kroger, which is just never a good start for me. And I am just... I, I can't fight the urges in the candy aisle. Like, I came back with so much junk. I've just been piling it on this week, and that's why after this, it's 10.52. I'm going to hit the bike for my two hours. It's time to rock and roll. That's why, you know, uh, they, David Clementine Kane is what I'm going to have to call you. That's a smart move. Got to do a, what I do and just clean them out. I, yeah. I haven't been back to Target because I know there's no more. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I got Empty like, boxes. I got Chips Ahoy Chewy cookies. I got... A big variety bag of candy. Do you like Reese's Pieces? No, I'm. I'm I try. I, I don't do a ton of plebeian chocolate. I gotta yeah, be honest. Yeah, pieces I'm a, I'm a bit are of the a... candy your grandma buys you at the movie theater when she's like, "Oh, you're gonna love these Reese's Pieces because they're the cheapest." And you're just like, "I hate Reese's." Pe-. I mean, I'm, I don't a... hate Reese's Pieces. They're just the least preferred. I mean, the most heartbreaking part of the pandemic for me, which goes to show my privilege, was when there was the announcement came down that all Godiva stores were closing in the United States. I mean, that was a rough <laughs> one for me personally, as someone who grew up getting his little chocolate heart from age three. You know, I can't, I can't even talk about it. I'm emotional, but it's yeah. just oh, man. that's that sort of that is te- technically my go-to. And if you can go to like a Target or even a Staples, they do sell them at the uh, at the checkout bar. Those uh, those those fun little Godiva bars with a G. Yeah, kill f- Mary Godiva Girardelli Lint. Oh, easy. Um, Mary Godiva, F. Uh, Ghirardelli, uh, kill Lint. You're Lint killing is too rich. Lint? It's too, too rich. You kind of just like, it's like slimes on your tongue and just, look. I'm <laughs> Sorry, Roger. I'm definitely marrying Ghirardelli because my guy Ghirardelli. simple man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> He's just, it's so consistent. You're right. If you. <laughs> if you have an F in a while, Lint can do the job for you. But you can't be F and Lint all the time. Like that's just too much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I think that's a good place to end, DK. Well, thank you as always for taking the time to come on the show tonight. This is why I'm telling you, late night pods are the most fun pods. As always, uh, I mean, again, I'll talk to you in 24 hours. So, dos vidanya, parasho. Dos vidanya. Hope all of you enjoyed my conversation with Tennis.com and Tennis Channel editorial producer David Kane. I cannot thank him enough for how gracious he has been with his time throughout the course of this week. Seriously, what did he do? Five Crack Rackets podcasts over the course of the week? That's got to be a record for any person in one week, and certainly he's climbing up the charts in most Crack Rackets podcast appearances. That's because I always value his insight. I appreciate, again, his candidness always as well. 
Always fun to have David Kane on the show, so I thank you to him once again for taking the time to join us. Of course, if you're looking for more Australian Open preview content, we have you covered here at Crack Rackets. We've broken down our men's and women's top contenders. We've broken down the dark horses, talked about the Americans, the irrationally exciting players, and all we've got left to do is talk about the draws, which we will be doing later today. You can find those podcasts, I believe, on the Great Shot podcast feed, or they'll be here on the mini break feed. Either way, of course, we'll keep you covered throughout the course of the next two weeks, recapping each day's action, offering picks for the next day's play, and you know, of course, for our Patreon subscribers, match of the day segments as well as we try to offer you all the sort of coverage we know you deserve as tennis fans. Of course, we got to give a shout out to our friends at Tennis Point for their support and helping make these podcasts possible day in, day out. You all know the deal. Tennis-point.com. Promo code is CR15 to let them know we sent you there. A shout out as always to super producer Daniel Westoff as well for the... Of an editing job he does day in, day out, was under the weather this week, still managed to crank out all the content. That's because he is the best in the business, of course. Why do we have so much content? Busy times. As I mentioned, 10 minutes at the top, college tennis rocking and rolling. You missed any of our preseason coverage, you can go check out our college contenders episodes. You can hear from countless Power Five men's and women's head coaches over on the Cracked Interviews podcast feed as well. All of that content available on our website, crackrackets.com. With all of that said, for our fantastic guests, David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. You know what we say. That's the break, and we'll see you all tomorrow. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>